We are studying this letter to the church in Sardis, the church of the living dead. Spiritual death doesn't happen overnight. It's not sudden. Likely for spiritual death to take place in a church that was once alive, it likely takes years to lull a congregation into the kind of spiritual slumber that eventually leads to spiritual death. Maybe it begins to take place in a family, a family that started out their Christian pilgrimage very zealous in their intentions, regular in their quiet times and their family times of worship were full of engaged conversation. Maybe they came to church and they sang with full hearts and listened with eager ears. But over time, the family worship became more routine than it did meaningful. Quiet times became more infrequent personally. Spiritual conversations were more rare than they used to be normal. The family comes to church regularly, they sing well, they nod to the truth that's taught, they smile and they enjoy the brief time of conversations they have with friends at church but there's little more than just the routine that takes place Sunday is the high point of their week and there's not much left after that they maintain a moral testimony to be sure a religious commitment no doubt but they cease to be spiritually vibrant and find significant spiritual corruption inside a very lively looking shell If you fill a church full of people like that, what will you have eventually? A dead church. I don't know many churches that started spiritually lifeless. Churches when they began are full of life, aren't they? Eager in evangelism. They want to penetrate the darkness of the community that's around them. They have a passion to spread the gospel. They want to see people embrace Jesus. They love the process of spiritual growth. But with every passing year after a church started, starts, you know, ministry becomes more complicated. As more people come in and there are different expectations that people have, those expectations can turn into agendas and agendas can work themselves into ultimatums. And what seems to make people happy and vibrant in society can be thought of by a congregation, especially when it becomes difficult to engage in ministry. What seems vibrant in the, congreg- in the culture, we begin to say, well, maybe we need a little more of that in our church. Maybe that's the key to evangelism, if we would just be like what the world likes. And then more of the church becomes populated with a craving for what is popular And it begins to drift away from what is more robustly biblical. The culture can tolerate a new church, but a lasting church begins to cramp the style of the surrounding society. And what you begin to see happen is that spiritual sensitivity becomes dulled in a whole congregation. It becomes dulled to a kind of biblical sleepiness that assumes the scriptures. It uses the scripture for their own culture appealing purposes. It ignores what becomes too culturally uncomfortable and makes excuses for a growing worldliness because we need to have some form of acceptance. Then we start accepting what The world loves, even though scripture might call it and name it as sinful. And the church still on the outside looks like it's thriving. Now when you look in the Bible and you start looking at things that are named by spiritual death, it's normally something that has an unsaved state connected to it, isn't it? Like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins or James chapter 2 verse 17 even so faith if it has no works what is it dead it's dead that's lifeless there's no spiritual life it's non-christian 
And the fact that Jesus tells this church in Sardis that it is dead could very well mean that the majority of the congregation is comprised of professing Christians, but false Christians. I don't know how this church got to that place. I would assume that in the beginning, it was a legitimate church full of people who were thriving in the things of the gospel. But as time has gone on, more non-Christians populate the church than true believers because Jesus notes of them in the whole that they are dead. Spiritual death is connected to lifelessness, to a non-Christian kind of lifelessness. Now, they have a very few within the church Maybe these few who are, still have some life in them are a bit anemic. Maybe they are full of an amnesia, perhaps, of spiritual amnesia. They don't remember what it used to be like, but the reality is there's not many of those in the church. There's more death than there is life. And what's interesting is that only Jesus seems to make this assessment of them. No one else does. Only Jesus says this church is dead because everybody else around them thinks, no, this is a church that's alive. They're full of life. There are a few who could still be in this church who could breathe life and bring back revival to the church, but the reality remains it's a dead church. It reminds us it is more than possible. It's more than possible to be a church that most on the outside would define as full of life, but one that Jesus alone, who knows the situation fully well, defines as spiritually dead. In fact, this progression from spiritual life to spiritual death is easily discernible in the letters that we're reading to the churches in Asia Minor that are recorded in chapters two and three of Revelation. Only two congregations out of the seven receive no condemnation from Jesus. Five out of the seven have Jesus rebuking the church for something. Ephesus loved doctrine, but they didn't really love Jesus or each other. They'd left it. Pergamum had a few who began to compromise the truth at the expense of being accepted in the culture. Thyatira compromised so significantly over such a long time that they only had a few who were not compromised. But Sardis... Sardis has reached a place where almost everyone in the church is dead. That's the progression. If you kill love in the name of truth, then you begin to love acceptance more than truth and embrace compromise to a place of corruption and corruption then creates the cancer that leads to death. That's what we've seen in the progression. And we need to be careful because before we cast the gaze to some other congregation outside of ourselves and name them, we have to look within because it's Jesus who's evaluating us. He's speaking to us this morning. Certainly, he evaluates every congregation, but you happen to be here today. And it's our church under the spotlight. And we need to be mindful of our own spiritual vibrancy. Last week, we started looking at this church that has reached the pinnacle point of compromise and corruption into death. And Sardis, as we've noted, is the church of the living dead, a church that has a reputation of being spiritually vibrant. Everybody else looks at them and the only thing they think of is life when they think about that church. But when Jesus speaks to the church, he says, you're dead. So, If you're in that state or if you're approaching that state and any congregation, including our own, can get to that point, again, it can start very easily in a family and populate a congregation. How do you revive a dying church? How do you revive a spiritually dead congregation? How do you help a congregation that has a reputation in the community for life, but it's found by the Lord of the church to be spiritually dead? Well, there's five parts in the letter and that reveals to us five distinct ways to revive a dead or a dying church. That's what we began looking at last week. Five ways to revive a dead or a dying church. You say, well, are you preaching this this morning because you think we're dead? No, it's just next in the passage, right? 
That's how the preachers get away with saying a lot of things. It's just next. But are we listening? Are we listening? We don't want to get here, do we? So what are these five different ways? One, focus on the true evaluator of spiritual vibrancy. Focus on the true evaluator of spiritual vibrancy. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The only way to remain a church that Jesus himself would commend is to keep our hearts fixed on Jesus himself. Every letter of the seven letters here begins with a particular reminder of the nature of Jesus, a specific aspect of his nature that speaks to the actual need of the church. And Sardis, the church of the living dead, needs to preoccupy itself with the only one who can genuinely evaluate the spiritual vibrancy of the congregation. They pride themselves on liveliness and Jesus says it's quite the opposite. Maybe they need to get their eyes off of their own statistics. Maybe they need to get their heart off of the society's affirmation or history's evaluation. Or maybe they need to stop reading all the discernment blogs that describe them as lively or not. What would Jesus say to our church? That's the only thing that we should really be interested in. What would he say to us? What makes him the only one able to provide a true evaluation of the spiritual vibrancy of the church? Well, he's the one who has the seven spirits, which we remember is a reference back to Zechariah 4. It speaks to the vision of Zerubbabel's rebuilt temple after the exile that looked inferior to the prior glory of the temple of Solomon. But the vision that Zechariah is recording that Zerubbabel have pointed to the messianic era and the messianic era is when the spirit comes and when the Messiah has come and the spirit has come the sign of liveliness is the presence of the spirit you don't have the spirit there is no life period no spirit no life Jesus possesses the spirit he gives the spirit he is the Messiah his era has come and he's also the one who not only gives the spirit, he's the one who governs the word. Remember that? He holds the seven stars, which we remember the seven stars are the angels that he sends to deliver his revelation. And it's his revelation that is the word. It is what the churches are to listen to and respond to. And we reminded ourselves that the one who gives the spirit and governs the word, the spirit and the word are not separate from one another. They go together. That's the universal testimony of the scripture. Where you find the spirit, you'll find the liveliness of the word. Where you find the lively action of the word in a congregation, that's where the spirit is. It's not on all the externals that you look for. What is being done with the word? That's where you find the spirit. It doesn't mean that you just emphasize the word. What's being done with the word? What is the activity of the word? That's where you'll find the spirit. And it's only Jesus who really knows the heart. I know your deeds. Interestingly, he says, I know the externals. I know the externals. I know what you're doing on the outside and you're dead. So he really knows the heart. He knows the intention and the motivation behind every action that we do as a church, every action that we do as individuals. He alone is the one who can evaluate whether we have the spirit or the activity of the word because he knows the heart behind the deeds. If you want to be alive, you focus on the true evaluator, Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Secondly, you have to follow the path back to spiritual vibrancy. That was verses two to three. A series of commands that we see here. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain which are about to die for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. It's a path back to life. Six different steps on that path. Wake up, build up, strengthen what remains. 
Go back, remember, remember what you have received and heard. Hold on, keep it. Turn around, repent, and then look out. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. Now again, some might see that as some tangible, temporal discipline that comes upon the church of Sardis. Or it could come on a church that's like Sardis and God might erase the testimony of that church in its time, in its setting. Or as we've been seeing in all of the churches thus far, when Jesus warns them about his coming, he's not warning about some temporal end-time judgment that could just wipe out the church locally. He's talking about an end-time judgment when he returns in his second coming. In fact, this language I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour. That is regularly used in the scripture to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Luke 12, 39 and 40. Be sure of this. That if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, verse 4. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, that is the day of God's coming judgment that ends in his full return to the earth in glory, you know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you as a thief. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. What does that mean? The Lord, when he returns, will evaluate and put on display the eternal reality of every local church's ministry. Listen to this, Summit Woods. When he returns, we will see whether the people of the church are an eternal kind of people because that's what we emphasized in ministry or we will see if we were a temporal, temporary, earthbound kind of ministry because we don't see the effects of our ministry in eternity. Think about that. Who among us will be in glory? What do we do as a church that emphasizes eternity as opposed to simply the here and the now and the evaluation of what the society, the culture, or even the religious people around us would assume is good and right. What does Jesus say will last for eternity? Are we as a church wood, hay, and stubble? Or when you look at the membership of our church and the growth of our congregation, do you look at people who say these have the marks of eternity on them? That's why he warns us with eternity every time. Every letter warns a church with eternity. When I come back, we'll see what you have been. There's a path. There's a path to spiritual vibrancy. But if you find yourself dead and dying, you better take that path or there's an eternal consequence right around the corner. And he could come back at any moment. That's how you live as a church. That's how you operate as a church. He could come back and that evaluation could land on us at any moment. Let's look at the third way that this letter points us to reviving a church that has a reputation of life, but in reality it's spiritually dead. Number three, encourage those who are spiritually vibrant. Encourage those who are spiritually vibrant. I think that's what the Lord does in verse four. Here's a shout out from Jesus to a dead church. There are some of you who aren't dead yet. You have a few people, or literally it is, you have a few names in Sardis. So you have a name overall that you're dead, but there's a few names on the roll. There's a few names in the membership, 
who are still alive. They have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. (laughs) I love that. Here's a few. Now my guess is in a lively church that's dead, those who are truly alive might be marginalized. Can you imagine? They're the holier than thou's. They're the ones that make us uncomfortable. They're the ones that keep pointing to the Bible, keep asking the pesky questions about the scriptures themselves. They might be a little overzealous. Maybe we tell them, you're a little too focused on the past. What's history's evaluation going to be of our church? Are we on the right side of history? Oh, you're trying to squelch our freedoms. But there are a few. A few. As opposed to Pergamum, who had a few who were compromising, and Thyatira, who only had some who were faithful in Sardis, most are dead. There's only a few, just a very few. And I would suggest that this must mean that there's only a few who are actually, truly Christian. That's a fascinating comment. There's a few. You say, that's astounding to think of it. Is it really? Did Jesus not warn us about this? Do you remember his comments in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7? You'll you'll know them right away because we remember them, but it's good for us to hear it again. Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to what? Life, true life. And there are few who find it. That's what he's saying of the church in Sardis. There's a few. And they are following the path to life. They're not on the broad road, the road that fits lots of people. Here's the few maybe cornered into irrelevancy and ignored more, more than likely, but they, they needed to be heralded as examples to follow. They're the, the actual ones who could breathe life, true life into the church. If there's just one or two, there's still hope. Jesus says of them, they have not soiled their garments. It's pretty significant for a city who was well known for its wool industry and its textile industry. They have garments that are not soiled. That's a poignant comment. But it also reveals the kind of thinking and the kind of behavior that has lulled this church into a fatal sleep. This church didn't look at themselves and brag on having soiled garments. I don't think they would do that. They assumed that the soiled garments represented something faithful. Right? I mean, what church out there would say, no, we love sin. We herald unrighteousness. We brag about violating the Bible. Come to our church. We hate the Bible. I mean, nobody, I haven't seen that. Maybe you know of a few out there. I I haven't really seen anybody. No, what we posit is what we think looks lively and good and we assume it to be faithful no matter what the Bible does say or we find a way to try to define it as faithful and use criteria other than the scripture perhaps but there's a few who haven't bought into that they haven't soiled their garments just a very few and they should be encouraged to keep going Their purity could be the beginning of revival. Their testimony could spark renewal and spiritual life. In fact, he so encourages them to say, keep on going because those few will walk with me in white garments. Why? Because they are worthy. That's such a powerful statement. Now listen, that phrase to walk with God, to walk with Jesus, that's an important phrase in the Bible. It's used a number of times of significant people in the Bible. Do you remember? It was Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 who walked with God. It was Noah. When you looked at all the surrounding culture, 
you could only find one person who was righteous and that was Noah and it was said of Noah, he walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. When Abram was called to be Abraham, his name was changed. He was called in Genesis 17, 1 to walk with God. What does that mean? To walk with God, that is to enjoy fellowship with him. That is to enjoy a relationship of acceptance with God. That he walks with you is to walk with God. That he finds it joyous to walk with you because you are found worthy. It's not just defining your doctrine correctly, church. That doesn't mean you walk with God. You can have an orthodox statement of faith. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? You can have a quiet time and you read through the Bible, but what's its impact? How are you meditating on the scripture so that you're constantly sensitive to your life in front of the spotlight of the word and so that you are growing and how is the church evaluating what it is doing and how it is trying to do it in light of what Christ has said? That's what it means to walk with God. It's to enjoy fellowship with him in light of what he's revealing in the scriptures. So they're going to walk with him because they've been found worthy. Did they make themselves worthy? You say, oh no, our understanding of justification, no one makes themselves worthy. And I think that's theologically right. In fact, look over at chapter 4 for just a moment of Revelation. Who's worthy? You look at verse 11 and you see it. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So the Lord, our God, he is worthy. You look at chapter five and verse two. Remember, the Lord had the scroll in his hand that actually unlocks the rest of the book of Revelation and all of the judgments that come that bring about the return of Christ and had seven seals on it. And verse two says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one, verse 3 says, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Why were they not able? They weren't worthy, right? Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Not until you get down to verse 9. After the lamb had taken the book and the elders bow down before the lamb, it says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Who is Who's the you here? It's the lamb. It's Christ. The Lord God was the worthy one in chapter four. It's the lamb. It is Christ in chapter five. He is worthy to take the book and break its seals for you were slain. So who's worthy? Christ is worthy. You don't make yourself worthy. But it's your connection to Christ that determines your worthiness. Now listen, that's true. Your justification, your being made acceptable to God, your being made worthy to God has all to do with the worthiness of Christ, not your worthiness, right? If it was our worthiness in and of ourselves, no one would be found worthy, just like we see here. There's no one worthy. But I want to suggest to you that those who are found to be worthy in chapter 3, verse 4, it's not talking about justification, it's actually talking about their sanctification, their life that displayed them as worthy people. Worthy not because they generated worth in and of themselves or by themselves, but worthiness in the way they lived because it was connected to the Lamb, connected to Christ. In fact, the path that these people follow is one that God finds worthy of his name and that is exactly how we are called to live. Have you ever noted how many times in the New Testament epistles we are called to live in a manner that is worthy of God and his gospel? Ephesians 4.1, just jot these down. I want you to hear them, Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's not saying there, justify yourself before God in your worthiness. No. Because you're justified, live in that manner of worthiness. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. And what is that? With humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance. So there's a practical side to being made worthy by the Lamb. You live in a worthy way. Philippians 1.27 Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's a practical side of living in a manner that's worthy. You're not making yourself worthy. You're living because you're worthy. Been made worthy. So live that way. Colossians 1.10 The Apostle Paul's praying for the saints in Colossae so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Not to gain his pleasure, You have his pleasure in Christ, but live in a way that you know he finds pleasure in. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's, That's the prayer that we pray for each other. That's the emphasis of a church. How are we helping each other to walk in a manner that's worthy of God himself? That if he were to evaluate us, he would say, that looks like my character. They're worthy. They've been living their life, these few people who stand out. And the rest of the church looks at them and says, your clothing looks odd. And Jesus says, your clothing looks unstained. Your life looks worthy, marked by the Lamb. What do they get? What is their hope? Because it's no doubt a struggle to live in a church that's dead and not soil your garments and to keep walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. What, do, what will they receive? They will walk with me in white because they're worthy. They will, this is future, isn't it? They will walk with me in white. The idea of ultimate purity from the stain of sin, that's found in the the idea of walking in white garments. It's a significant idea through the rest of the book of Revelation. You'll see it not only here in verse 4 and in verse 5 in this church. You'll see it mentioned again in chapter 3 verse 18. You'll see these white garments mentioned in chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 6, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 9, verse 13 of chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 19, verse 14. So this is not the last time you see a reference to the white garments. Why, why white? It's not just purity. It's not just unstained. White is what can exist in the presence of God. When you read of something that's white, It's white because it's connected with where God lives. It can exist in God's presence because it's unstained. I mean, think of this in Matthew 28, 3. There was an angel at the tomb of Jesus and it says his clothing was as white as snow. Why? Where did he come from? God. His clothing fits his origin. He lives with God. John 20, verse 12, there were two angels in white sitting, one at the head of where Jesus' body used to be and one at the foot. Acts 1.10, there were two angels speaking with the disciples after the ascension of Christ and they were two men in white clothing. Why? Because they're connected with heaven. They're connected with God and where God lives. Revelation 14.14, even the Son of Man is gonna come in a white cloud what does that represent heaven revelation 19 14 christ returns on a white horse why a white horse not just for purity's sake but it's something connected with heaven in chapter 20 verse 11 there's a great white throne there's a heavenly throne god's throne it's white because it's heavenly so what does this mean That one day we'll go up and we'll live with him up in the air in heaven? No, one day we will live with him and walk with him on the earth because heaven will have come to the earth. And these few who wouldn't soil their garments now will have the kind of garments, the kind of life that will live with Christ 
on the earth in eternity forever when he returns. What a promise. They will live in complete unhindered fellowship and proximity to Christ forever. Why does he give them that future reward as a promise? So that they won't compromise now. They won't compromise now. It begs for us to answer the question, how much does eternally, eternal heavenly fellowship with Jesus on the earth actually mean to you right now? How much does eternal heavenly kind of fellowship with Jesus on the earth for eternity mean to you right now? We will see it in how you live now. It defines you. You keep reorienting your life to what the scripture calls you to, even when it's uncomfortable, it's not where the whole congregation's going perhaps, but it's right. This is Jesus encouraging the faithful. It's him saying to the church, those few that you push aside and marginalize, those are the ones who will walk with me. Encourage them. In fact, I think that would be helpful if we would do that. Any, any names come to mind? As you're living your life through the church, you find there's these people. It doesn't seem like they're perfect people, but you see, see them, they keep striving after what is biblical. They seem to have a heart that just beats with a passion that says, I really want with everything in me to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. They weep over their sin. They're joyous over righteousness. They don't find their joy in all of the sinful trappings of the world. They're not living to become worldly looking. They, they want to look like Christ. They want others to look like Christ. It's the emphasis of their life. Do you know anybody like that? You might need to walk up to them or jot them a note and send it to them this week. Maybe a phone call and say, you've been an encouragement to me to live in a God-centered way. Your testimony helps me. And if that is you and you're getting weary of going against the grain and swimming upstream against the culture, just know one day, one day, you'll have unhindered fellowship with your Savior in perfection. You'll never even have the opportunity to soil your garments again. That's a great promise. Don't quit. Don't go to sleep. Don't get lulled into spiritual death. Encourage those who are really walking with the Lord. Let's look at another way to revive the spiritually dead congregation. It's found in verse 5. Fix your hope on the reward for spiritual vibrancy. Here's another future reward. Fix your hope on the reward for spiritual vibrancy similar to what we just saw and it's similar to what we've seen in the previous four churches live in light of the promise that comes when Christ comes and what are the promises here well there's two of them there's two promises here that we fix our hope on one it's security from death this is interesting in a church that's dead if you're alive just know you have you will have security from death where do we see that Notice the beginning of verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, those white garments he just mentioned in verse four, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. You'll have those white garments, those eternal heavenly garments. You'll walk with him, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now that phrase causes a lot of spiritual indigestion by a lot of commentators when they talk about it. And we, we have a lot of indigestion when we read it. What does that mean? Does that mean my, if my name is in the book, it could get erased? Well, the problem with this is not based on what the passage actually says, but in what people assume could happen right you read that and you don't think oh my name will never be erased you're like could my name be erased 
That's where you go. But that's not what the text says. Now, first, to to understand what is being described here, let's talk about what this book of life is. Can we just start there? Now, fundamental truth when you're studying the Bible, if you want to interpret something correctly, let's look to see what the text itself says about the book of life. And let's look to see what John in the book of Revelation says about the book of life because it's mentioned several places in Revelation. So before you run to Moses in Exodus, because that's where some people want to go, God, don't blot me out of your book. Like, I, I could lose it. Let's first start with John and Revelation to find what the book of life is. So jot down a few references. And again, I'm just going to read them. We'll comment a little bit on them. You can spend some more time thinking through them. But here's references to the book of life in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. What does it refer to? There are some whose names have not been written from the foundation of the world in the book. Or Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go into destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they'll wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So there's some who are connected to the earth whose name was not written in the book. Revelation 20 verse 12 is another reference. I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. And listen to this carefully. And books were opened. So there's not just one book, there's books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So there's books that have your life and your deeds recorded. And then there's a book that's called the book of life. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the new Jerusalem but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What do we learn? Well, from this I learn that this book of life, there are names that were written in this book from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Before the world was ever created, the book of life and those who have life are written into that book. That's what the text says. There are names that have been written before the world was created, before anyone that was ever born. It's a book of names of those who are actually connected to the Lamb because it's the Lamb's book of life. If your name is is in it, it's because of your connection to the Lamb, your connection to Christ. Those in this book whose names are in the book, they are contrasted to those who dwell on the earth. There are those who are connected to the earth. That's those who oppose God. It's a frequent phrase in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth. They oppose God. Guess what? Their names were never written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's what the text says. It is also a book that is distinct from other books that record a person's deeds, not merely their names. There are many books that exist. Those who live a sinful lifestyle According to what we've looked at in Revelation, they never had their name written in the book of life. There's a few other places in the New Testament where we see reference to the book of life. Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, and he means don't rejoice that you have power over the the demonic. That's not where your joy needs to be, though that would be pretty cool, right? No, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's where your joy ought to be. My name is in the book. Philippians 4.3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life? The fellow workers of the gospel. Those connected to the gospel. 
Hebrews 12, 23 refers to the general assembly, the, the gathering of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, enrolled in heaven. So there's a few other places that mention this and every time it's mentioned, it refers to genuine believers who are walking with God. There's a couple of other references as you back out. We've seen what John says. We see what the New Testament says. There's a couple other references in the Old Testament, particularly Old Testament texts that are related to something like the book of Revelation. It's the same kind of context as Revelation. Daniel 7, verse 9 and 10. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat and his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head pure like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriad of, upon myriads were standing before him and the court sat and then it says the books were opened. It sounds like Revelation 20, the books were opened. Then when you get to the end of the book of Daniel, it says in chapter 12, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others whose names were not found in the book to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So even the book of Daniel, when it talks about ultimate judgment, says there are books that are open there, but there's a book that has the names recorded of those who have true life. Now for the indigestion. There's a couple of references like Psalm 69 verse 27 where the psalmist prays, add iniquity to their iniquity, talking of the, about the unrighteous. And may they not come into your righteousness, may they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. It's one of those imprecatory prayers that you wonder, can I pray this one? Can I, I have a name in mind, could I pray it for them? Well, the psalmist obviously had a name, and he's saying they shouldn't be in the book of life. If their name is there, they're so, they so stand against you, blot the name out. What's he asking for? He's asking for justice toward those who have seemingly aligned themselves with God's people, but they live in open sin and they oppose God's righteousness. And he's saying, let the book of life only reflect those who live in righteousness. It's not necessarily a statement that there are names in the book of life that need to be taken out. He's just saying, let this book reflect righteousness. Similar to Moses, Exodus 32, verse 32. Moses gets a little frustrated with Israel every now and then. And he now is expressing a little frustration, maybe with the Lord. He knows that Israel deserves justice, but he also knows if God wipes these people out, then the name of God will receive a testimony from the rest of the world that shames the character of God. And so he prays for Israel and he says, now, Exodus 32, 32, if you will forgive their sin, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. That's the one that causes indigestion. Seems to say there could be a name there that's going to get blotted out. Or does it mean that? Does this mean that the book of life contains names that could be blotted out because they sin? Well, the first thing to note is we're not told in Exodus 32 that this is the book of life. Remember, there are multiple books. Is this the book of life that's referred to in the book of Revelation and Daniel and some of the gospel references? There are many books. But let's assume for a moment, just for a moment, because we don't know that, and some make a good case that this is not the same book. It's just the book of those who are living. 
actual have physical life. But if it is the same book, does it demand that names that are written in it that, that, that are there could legitimately be removed? Or is God promising? If there's a name of someone who lives in such a way that he shows he does not possess eternal life, I'll take his name out. I'll take it out. But the reality is, there aren't any of those names in the book. Could be what he's saying. Yep, if, if you show me a name that's in this book that doesn't belong, I'll blot it out. But the reality is, there are no names in that book that could be taken out. It's the book of all those who will live because it was written when? Before the foundation of the world. The book's already been written. God knows the names. We don't. Moses doesn't. And God ensures that every name in the book will be of those who are living. So the book of life and revelation and throughout the Bible doesn't seem to suggest that someone could have their name in there and then have it removed. It's simply a suggestion and a reality that if your name is in the book, it can't be removed. In fact, go back to Revelation 3 for a moment. When he says in verse 5, I will not erase his name. In the Greek language, it uses the strongest form of negation possible, the ume form of negation. There's no possibility that I will ever erase his name. Not even a hint of a conceivable way that Jesus would blot the name out. Why? They're overcomers. They overcame. And because they overcame, there's no possibility that I ever will blot their name out. In fact, there's no possibility that those whose names are in the book of life will not overcome so as to have their name removed. They will overcome. This is a statement of encouragement. This is a statement of stability. It's a statement of hope. If you overcome, you cannot be removed from the book. Well, what if you don't overcome? You're going to get to the end of eternity and find out your name was not in the book. You might have a name that you're alive but you're really dead because your name was never in the book of life. The text doesn't suggest here that you one day could be truly saved and the next day not. It says, no, there's no possibility. The overcomers are the true. They are the faithful. They are the ones whose names have been in the book. And if your name was not there, it was never recorded there. There's no possibility of being blotted out. The text is pretty clear. There's no conceivable way. What does that mean? Overcome now. And you have eternal security. You say, well, what if I don't overcome? That means if you don't overcome and you walk away from the faith into Christ, into a, a walk away from Christ into unbelief, ultimately you will look back and see you are never genuinely in Christ to begin with. It's quite a statement to this church of the living dead. They have a name that looks alive, but their name was never recorded in the book of life. It's quite a promise. You have life. There's a second promise given here. It's confession. It's not just security from death, it's confession for life. Everyone who overcomes, there's no possibility that his name could be erased from the book of life. And in addition to that, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a tremendous statement. This seems to speak of a time when the son takes all of those who are his and presents them to the father in heaven. It's before the Father and his angels as if they're in heaven. He takes all those who are his people and presents them to the Father and he confesses their name to the Father as if they belong to him. There is some time that we have to look forward to when we're actually brought by the Son 
to the Father and he says these, by name, can you imagine? By name, this one is mine. This one is mine. This one belongs to us. I'll confess his name. So you might be a church that has a name that you're alive, but will your name be confessed by the Son before the Father? If you overcome, if you won't compromise, if you won't soil your garments with the compromise with the world, I will confess your name before the Father. Not only is it an impossibility that your name could be taken out of the book, I actually will confess your name. I'll read it out of the book in front of the Father. It's a pretty profound thought. In fact, this is what Paul prayed for when he prayed for the saints, like in the saints in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3. He prayed that the Lord would cause them to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do for you so that God would establish their hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. There is a time that we will be presented to the Father in heaven with the angels and all the saints surrounding and our name will be confessed before the Father. It's a great means of motivation. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't compromise. Don't think that the world is is putting such pressure on you, you just gotta keep your testimony to yourself. No. I'll actually mention your name before the Father. Which is most important to you? You see this? What's most important to you? That your name is recognized here? That you have a name and a reputation here? Or that Jesus would actually say your name in affirmation in front of God? How would you answer that? I, no, I want my name in lights. I want recognition. I want what's due to me. I want to receive people's praise now. Or do you want your name recognized before God by the Son? Whichever one is most important to you will drive you now and motivate you. It's great motivation to be faithful. I regularly have conversations with people who contact me outside of our church typically just a few weeks ago when I was speaking in Emporia I was doing a breakout session at the men's conference on uh, how to leave your church I was amazed at how many from Summit Woods were there but uh, <laughs> that's another thing but I received a few email and I got a lot of people coming up to me afterwards saying but I live in a rural place I live in a place where there's a couple of churches and there just doesn't seem to be a gospel preaching church or the church that I'm in I mean the doctrinal statement's right but there's no life there's not even a desire in the people so what do I do do I travel two hours to come to Summit Woods do I travel three hours to go to Emporia what, I mean what do I do I know that's a real thing what if I'm in a dead church I think he's writing to people who are in a dead church right what do you do you stay there and be faithful Really? I got to stay there and be faithful? Yeah, stay there and be faithful. I mean, listen, if, if you're in a place like Kansas City, there's a lot of lively churches, churches with true life in them. You don't have to stay in a dead church. You have to be faithful. You have to be faithful to the Lord. But if you find yourself in a place where this church has no real spiritual life, and I'm not sure what the other option is, well, the option is not for you to just say, well, I'm just going to stay home and do my own thing. Let me just say right off the bat, that is unfaithful. That's unfaithful. Don't, don't think of yourself as, well, I'm the, I'm the one who's faithful. No, stay where you are and be faithful. These few faithful were the possible means of this church in Sardis coming back to life. So you might need to stay where you are and simply remain humble, faithful, point to the word, point to the Lord. Well, what if I spend the rest of my life like that? You mean like Jeremiah who preached to people who never believed? Maybe. What means more? I get my good now or I walk with him in white forever. He confesses my name. There's no possibility of me ever being erased. I mean, what motivates you now? You might need to stay where you are. 
Spiritual vibrancy can exist even in an atmosphere where death seems to reign. So if you want to help a dead church live, focus on the true evaluator of spiritual vibrancy. Follow the path back to spiritual vibrancy. Encourage the few who are spiritually vibrant. Fix your hope on the reward of spiritual vibrancy. There's one last one. Fifth way that this letter points us to reviving a church with a reputation of life, but it's dead. Fill your ears with the words of spiritual vibrancy. Where do we get that? That familiar phrase at the end of these letters. Verse six, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has a true spiritual ear, one that is awake to the gospel and knows the truth. Do you have that ear? Do you have the capacity to hear the truth because you're born again? That's what he's asking. Then constantly listen to what the Spirit is always saying to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? It's not just this letter. It's the whole of it. And it's everything the Spirit is saying. And as we've made note, the Spirit breathes out the Word. The Word is the Word of the Spirit. Listen to the Scriptures. Fill your ears with the words of life. I just want to come back again and plead with you. Get into the Bible and get the Bible into you. If you want to be alive, it will be connected to the way you use the scriptures. And listen, I love books. I have a lot of books. Some of you have a lot of books and you love to read. And we have the internet, good or bad. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good, we use it. A lot of good, helpful things. I was listening to a sermon this morning that I thought was just a way better sermon than this one would ever be. On the same text, and he's got a Scottish accent, so it's even better, you know? There's a lot of good resources. And they might use the Bible and point you to the Bible. Maybe explain some things of the Bible. There is no, no excuse for you not having your nose in the Bible. It will not leave you discouraged. It will not cause you to be paranoid. It will not leave you in a place where you're not satisfied. It is satisfying. It is joy producing. It is comforting. It is helpful. It will reorient your life. There is nothing like a Christian with their Bible, with the indwelling spirit and communing with the Lord. And I don't mean just get through the Bible in a year, meditate. If there's any secret to stopping spiritual death, it is you learning the art of meditating on the scripture to understand its truth because at the end of the day, the Lord is not gonna say, to you but look at all the people on the internet who was who were pointing these things out he's not going to say that's not one of the books that will be opened he's not going to do that the one who gives the spirit is the one who governs the word and those are the elements of life hear what he is saying so if you've got your nose in the books about the Bible more than the Bible. That's not what breathes life. And we need to hear that. We, we love all these sources of truth. Get into the source of truth. Get your nose into this book. Meditate on this book. And if it's too boring and not enough, that points to a spiritual issue. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help. We know it is easy to neglect fellowship with you in the scriptures and still read good things, have good conversations. Lord, I pray that you will help your people to see what fellowship with you over your truth really looks like. 
what it looks like to meditate on the word, to dwell on its contents, to dig into it in rigorous study so that we would use it well in the day-to-day of our life to shape how we think because there is chapter and verse connected to it. We pray we would live in light of your evaluation, not anyone else's. We pray we will live in a way that looks for your reward and not the reward of anyone else. Lord, when we speak, we pray we speak the words of scripture. When we write to people, we pray we write them what the word says so that they're encouraged and helped convicted, strengthened by the truth of the Bible. We pray for help. We need it. Search us. You know us. Reveal what needs to change, particularly for those who don't have a relationship with you. Open their eyes to see the glory that could come to them through Jesus forgiveness in his name because of what he 